You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I bring back Ashley Kerr to talk about real estate investing during the pandemic, some new real estate properties she has invested in, and other initiatives over the past six months that she's taken. Ashley has a background in accounting, is a successful real estate investor, and host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast. I'm happy to have Ashley back to talk about her latest rental properties, as well as some of the initiatives she has introduced in her property management business over the past few months. We also talk about investing in real estate during the coronavirus pandemic and how it's possible to find good deals in this market. I mentioned on the show how I post about the 1% rule on Instagram. And when I do that, I often get a lot of pushback from people that it's not possible to find 1% deals. Ashley and I talk about that. We talk about how it is possible to find 1% deals in today's market, no matter where you live. I find Ashley's success stories to be inspiring, and I hope that they may help those who are on the fence about starting their real estate journey, especially in today's current market conditions. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Ashley Kerr. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. You are one of the first guests that I bring back here on the podcast. And I wanted to bring you back because I really enjoyed our first conversation. I know the audience did too from all the feedback I received. And I just enjoy all the content that you put out, whether it's your own podcast or on social. So I wanted to have you back on the show. How have you been since we last talked? I know the world has changed quite a bit. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I am very happy to be back. Since then, honestly, the biggest thing has been uh, that I opened a liquor store. So that's been kind of the life-changing thing for me and just learning how to open a retail business and run it pretty passively. And then I've also purchased a couple of properties since then too. I have it in my notes to talk about the liquor store. So I definitely want to talk about that. I'm, I'm curious to hear about kind of the process, the rationale and how that's going. But for those listening to this episode or new to the show and maybe not heard our first episode together or just maybe not know who you are, give us a rundown on your background and really how you got to where you are today. The biggest thing is I'm the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie podcast. But before all that, I started out investing about seven years ago. I worked for an investor and I was managing a 40-unit apartment complex for him and I built a property management company for him. And then I did all his acquisitions, I did all his financing, and I really learned everything we needed to know about real estate investing. So I approached his son and said, hey, I want to do this. Do you want to do this with me? And we partnered up on our first deal, a duplex. And from there, I've partnered with him on some more. I've partnered with another partner and then uh, my brother and sister on a couple deals and then have done deals on my own. Mostly just uh, single family duplexes, triplexes, one four unit, one six unit and just all buy and hold, no flips or anything like that. When you started to work with him, were you already an investor or did that turn you into an investor? That turned me into an investor. So I was actually an accountant. And then I hated working at a public accounting firm and quit and then started working for this investor just part-time. And then it turned in kind of full-time job and a lot more than I expected. But it worked out great because I got paid to have that experience 
of how to be a real estate investor. How are you able to get him to trust you with all of that if you had no experience? I was his uh, next door neighbor since I was two and grew up and was like best friends with his kids. So that's kind of how it all started. And he just needed someone to, is more his family pushing him to hire me because they knew I had quit my job. I actually wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and I wasn't even going to work anymore. <laughs> and they were like, please just help him. I don't know if they thought, well, you're an accountant. You should be able to help organize him, do some of his bookkeeping and stuff. So uh, I did that just part-time at first. And the biggest thing for me was he offered to pay for my health insurance, which my husband is self-employed. And then me staying at home, not working at the accounting firm, that was like a big thing for me was to get our health insurance. So I agreed to it. I'm so glad I did because just the stuff I learned has been amazing. Yeah, that's clearly had a, a big impact on how your, the rest of your life has turned out. Why have you stuck with the smaller properties? I mean, you have a bunch of experience. Why not go for a bigger 50 unit or 100 unit deal? Well, I kind of have two answers to that. He had two 40 unit apartment complexes, residential, and they drove me crazy. I managed, at one point, I was managing about 130 units between residential and commercial units. And it was pretty much by myself with one part time person. And I gave that up in February. I think one of the biggest things I haven't gone bigger is because I have seen what a different animal multifamily is than single family and duplexes, you know, with the one to four units. And then my second answer would be is that I'm waiting to purchase his properties from him. When you get into those bigger deals, is it smaller margins per unit, but in total, it's more cash flow per month because there's more units? And so you don't want to deal with that. You want to focus on the smaller units so it's more cash flow per unit and you don't need as many? Is that kind of the approach? Yeah. I always used to think like more under one roof, the better. But I've learned that you actually need a business to run a large multifamily property. And you could obviously have that business be a property management company that you outsource all of that, but you really need to find a good one. The one that I currently have, they're good, but this is their first big multifamily properties that they've took over because I'm still working for this investor. Just the property management company reports to me. I answer any questions they have. I approve everything. I manage the money for the complexes still. And there's still a lot I have to do. And that's a lot that I'm still involved in with these big multifamily units. Plus, I've also really only used... I've never used other people's money per se. Like I've had a small private lender. I've used my own line of credit. So I've never gone after like big, hard money to purchase these big deals either. Yeah. You've partnered with some people here and there, but you've never done like a full syndication, right? Correct. I'm sure it's like a sliding scale, but what point does that property become that much work? Is it 10 units? Is it 20 units? Is it 50 units? At what point you know, do you say like that's, that's enough units for it to be too many? That's a good question. So the largest I have personally is a six unit, but it's actually three duplexes on like the same parcel. So like the biggest thing to me that annoys me is like the sharing of the walls and the complaining of each other. <laughs> So I would say like to really get to that point, it probably depends on how the building is structured. You know, are they, you know, is everybody right on top of each other? Are you spread out a little bit? Are they more like townhomes? But to me, it would probably be like that 15 units or above, I would say, is where I, I see it as like a, a bigger multifamily to outsource everything. When you're buying multiple buildings on one parcel, do you get worried about having, in this case, say three roofs now to fix, three buildings you have to side 
all these different things that come with having three different buildings rather than just one? Actually, I prefer it because I can pick and choose what I'm going to do. Like, so I recently painted one, but I only had to paint that one. Like that one was just a little bit worse than the other ones weren't that bad. You can spread out your expenses if you need to. So like if for some reason I did need to replace all three roofs, I wouldn't have to pay for one big roof at once. I could say, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this one right now. Three months later, I'll do the next one. Three months later, I'll do the next one or something like that. So I kind of like that aspect of it. I like the the tenants being separated and that, you know, feels more like they have their own their own home and they tend to take care of it more, I think, in, you know, my experience at least than like being in a, a larger complex. Are you generally able to charge higher rent? Yes, because you're getting more of like your own yard. You're getting your own little driveway right to your door, definitely. It's funny we're having this conversation because somebody asked me the other day, I did a Q&A on, on Instagram where people could ask me anything and I'd answer all their questions. And somebody asked me where I saw my portfolio in five years. And I said, there's two different paths. I said, one, I'm going to own roughly 20 to 25 units, mostly by myself, maybe some family or a couple of small partners here and there. Or I'm going to own 500 units and I'm going to own... like I have a fund and do that. So I'm like, I don't know which route I want to go because... I I agree with what, everything you're saying. And I, I kind of like that model versus you know buying these 100 unit buildings and going that route. Someone once said to me, like having a portfolio that's small but mighty. So like you're, you're not going to have as you know, many units as maybe somebody else, but you might have just as much cash flow as them just because you're buying better deals. And like another thing that I think of when is a reason why I haven't gotten to like big multifamily or bigger deals is because Right now, like I can buy a duplex for twenty thousand to sixty thousand dollars, and that's just so easy for me. Like I can just pull that money off my line of credit. I don't have to really go find money or do any work. So I think that's the heart of the reason too is why I'm stuck with like the smaller deals is because I know exactly what to do to to get one of those. Yeah, I feel the same way, and I think I'd rather optimize how much cash flow I can get per unit rather than focusing on getting a million units and. I didn't think that way at first. When I first got into real estate, I was like, I need a thousand units. That was like the benchmark. And I feel like that's everybody, right? We want a thousand units. But as I think about it, I'm, I'm just trying to squeeze every dollar out of each unit that I have and make them as optimal as I can and then go from there. You know, I think a lot of people get kind of stuck in like an ego trap, if you will, of saying, hey, I have 150 units instead of just saying, hey, I have five rental units that produce 500 months in cash flow. You recently posted on Instagram and you said, this year I found a word that described how I wanted to live. Spontaneous. And I love the rest of the caption and the meaning behind it all because it's something that I've found myself doing a lot more in 2020 than I had in recent years. Why is being spontaneous important? And how are you doing this without sacrificing your financial goals? I've always really struggled with my why. Because I really think that like an easy why is to say, oh, my family, my kids. Like, that's pretty obvious. Why wouldn't that be someone's why? So I really wanted to find something that would um, drive me more and just be something more unique and something else to focus on. Because I think my, my family, my kids, they, I mean, they're pretty well off. They're pretty happy. It's not like I need to like, do this so that they can you know, go to a better school or something like that. But so I sat down and I took me quite a while, but I figured out what I really wanted was to be able to do things whenever I wanted. So just wake up and not really have a schedule, but to be spontaneous. So me and my kids uh, a couple weeks ago and my husband, we had booked a a trip to Disney and we'd booked this about a year ago. Well, two months before we were leaving, 
I uh, booked an Airbnb so that me and the kids could fly down five days earlier. You know, that was spontaneous. A couple of weeks before we were supposed to go, we switched our, our flights. We booked an Airbnb and we went down there and just hung out at a pool for five days until my husband met us there and we went to Disney. And I just want to be able to do that, but not even on the travel, the let's go on a trip scale, but also like, you know what, today I want to learn how to open a liquor store or, you know, I want to learn to do this or I want to actually do this or, you know what, today I'm just going to stay in bed and read all day. (laughs) I just want to be able to be spontaneous in what I'm doing. And I want to be able to just kind of create my life spontaneously where I'm not tied down to, to having to stay into a routine. And I think that kind of goes back to working in the accounting firm, where it was the same thing every day. And you have the different clients, but you're doing the same thing for every single person, basically. How do you balance that with your financial goals? I don't get asked that a ton on this show, but my other show, Millennial Investing, people ask me that all the time. They say, how do I balance spending today versus saving for tomorrow? How do you balance that? So the biggest thing is travel hacking with credit card reward points. So probably for the last three and a half years, just this year was like the first year I paid for travel, which was our Disney trip. A year ago, me and my husband went to Hawaii. It was like a $6,000 trip and that was all paid for with reward points. Like we didn't pay a dime for that. So that has been like the travel part of it and be able to do that. We have the Southwest Companion Pass and everything like that. But big thing is we paid off all of our debt too, so our personal debt. So we have our primary mortgage and then we have mortgages on the rental property and all of them are cash flowing. So it's, we don't have any debt really to pay out of pocket. I think that really helped us getting that strong financial foundation for us personally. And then I went on and continued to grow my businesses. And even with the liquor store, it was really important that we didn't have debt for the liquor store. So I have a partner in that who I also partner with rental properties on. And so far, like we've cash flowed all of our inventory, which is, you know, quite a big chunk of change for all of this liquor. And that was really important to us to not have debt on that and be able to open this business without debt. So I think just not over leveraging ourselves has been great and just learning how to I don't actually sit down and do a budget, but like I know I I don't have that money. I'm not gonna spend it. Or if I use my credit card, I paid off like every Friday or whatever, like I can't stand it. So just little things like that have just uh, really helped. But we're this year, I would say, is like the year that we really haven't really had to... I guess I could say we could survive off of my husband's income only. So any income I have is just kind of savings, gravy, anything like that. And I think that's kind of helped with being spontaneous is that we have a nice cushion now and multiple streams of income coming in. And I think COVID was a big eye opener to that where, you know, my whole goal at first when I first started rental properties was so that my husband could retire from the farm. I quickly realized that that was never going to happen. Like if we were billionaires, he'd still get up every day and milk the house. So I got, I had to get rid of that why and that goal because I knew that was never an option. But I always thought the rental income would be if something happened to the farm or something to happen to him and he couldn't work anymore. Well, during COVID, like his farm income was very steady. Like it wasn't affected at all from that. But rental properties, there was the worry that tenants wouldn't pay rent. There was, you know, no evictions, anything like that. All of a sudden it was like a flip. Our farm income would cover our mortgages on the rental properties. And I did not ever foresee it being that way. And so just reinforce the thing of having multiple streams of income coming in. And now we have the liquor store income too. But yeah, just that having those multiple streams of income to rely on too. 
Yeah, travel hacking is one of those reasons why I don't necessarily agree with all of Dave Ramsey's approach because I think a lot of the stuff that he talks about is great, but I'm the same way as you as I spend every dollar on credit cards and I I usually pay it weekly like you do just so I can earn the rewards. And actually this year, I earned the companion pass for the first time. But you probably haven't really been able to use it this year. Yep. I earned it literally in March, right when COVID hit. And I'm like, oh man, thankfully it's good for two years. So I still have it for all of 2021. Hopefully I can utilize it then. I have been able to use it once. But so for anybody that doesn't know what the companion pass is, is it's a level of rewards through Southwest that you're able to bring anybody you want for free. You can designate one person and anytime you fly, they can fly with you for free. You can change it up to three times a year, I believe. So you can bring some different people with you. But yeah, it's basically buy one, get one free for any flight you have on Southwest, which is pretty awesome. Definitely helps reduce your travel costs. Now, I want to talk about the liquor store business. We've mentioned it a couple of times. Tell us a bit about that. Why a liquor store and how'd you even get into that business? So it all goes back to the investor I worked for. He has a liquor store. I've always just watched it and seen how it's done. And I mean, he does nothing with it. Like he wouldn't be able to tell you how to order from the wholesaler or, you know, how to work the cash register or how much their sales are a month or anything like that. So there was this building and uh, this guy I bought probably like five or six properties from had it in his portfolio three years ago and he wanted to sell for 90,000. I bought his other properties, didn't buy that one. It was a commercial building, two commercial downstairs, two residential upstairs. And I didn't know what to do with the commercial units. It was very small town. There was other vacant buildings like on the main street that were commercial. So I didn't buy it. A year and a half later, uh, the guy approached me and was like, you know what? I'll sell it for 60000 and I'll sell you a duplex I have. The duplex had a commercial unit, the downstairs and a, a nice apartment upstairs, but it was in like a residential area. They'd have to get it rezoned because the commercial underneath, like there, there was nothing really that could go in there and it needed a ton of work. There had been water leaks in the building, stuff like that. So I offered him 40000 for bulk buildings and I ended up wholesaling the duplex for $20,000. So I got the four unit for 20000 At the time, there was um, a tenant living upstairs. She still lives there now and she wants to live there forever. And then I completely gutted and remodeled the other residential unit and then remodeled the two downstairs commercial units and decided that when I purchased the building that, you know what, this is where I'm going to put a liquor store in. In New York State, you can only have one liquor store. Uh, You can only own one. I know there's like big franchises. I don't know how they get around that. But as a small individual business owner like me, they only allow you one liquor license, one liquor store. So the guy that I worked for, it's not like he could go out and buy more liquor stores or partner with me or anything like that. So he was just like, you know what, I'll just help you. And then he gave me access to you know his liquor store financial statements. I could use his manager, ask her questions. So last November, I closed on the property and I filed for my liquor license with my partner. And we actually hired a liquor broker. I think his fee was like $1,200 and he takes care of everything for the liquor license. You just give him some information about you. And that was amazing because I've heard horror stories of people having a really hard time getting their liquor license in New York State. So another rule is that the liquor authority will not allow more than one liquor store in a town. So what I had done too, uh, before I purchased the building was I had taken a map of like our county and I had looked and I had found two towns where there weren't liquor stores and where it was the largest radius where there wasn't a liquor store. So I knew that those were towns that would have a high approval rate of getting a liquor license because there was nothing close. 
So the liquor broker agreed and we went forward with it. Well, then COVID happened and we ended up not even getting our pre-approval until June. And then we actually didn't get our liquor license until September. So it was almost a year long process (laughs) to get that. But yeah, it all basically started back to that investor and that building. Just it ended up being the perfect building for that. I rented out the upstairs unit and then the downstairs unit. Uh, Before we were even done with it, I actually had someone who lived right close to it who had a boutique, an online boutique that was very successful and just wanted her first storefront close to home. And so she took over the other unit. So you bought the building before you had the liquor license approved? Oh, yes. Yeah. So we were we worked all winter long rehabbing it, everything like that. And you have to because the, the liquor authority, when you apply for your liquor license, you have to show them what the building is. You have to send in measurements. You have to send in a layout, like show them even where the counter is going to go. And then when you get that pre-approval that we had gotten in June, you have to send in pictures of it, like ready to go, like ready to open. You have the shelving on the walls, so you can't even get your final liquor license until you are ready to open. So what was going to be plan B if you didn't get the liquor license? We would just rent it out. But we were pretty optimistic that we would get it just from our, the research I had done and the liquor license broker, just his knowledge and you know, being pretty confident we would get it. And were you able to essentially float the property for that year because of all the other units that were there? Well, we didn't even finish rehabbing it until the spring anyway. So we just had one tenant, but I had only purchased the property for $20,000. So it wasn't a huge amount of money to have out there. I mean, I'd use my line of credit and I was just paying 6% interest on that 20000 And then for the rehab, we pretty much just cash flowed it, used a little bit more off of my line of credit. And then we did most of the work ourselves. Yeah. So that one unit, because you were able to get it for such a small price, you were able to probably cash flow and actually make a profit just from that one unit. Yeah. So like even just the commercial unit that rents for $700 and then the two upstairs apartments, the one that the lady's still there, hers is 400 a month. And then the other one is 590 a month. And then the liquor store pays $1,000 a month to us. We're going to talk about a 1% deal in a few minutes, but talk about a 1% deal. I mean, that's, that's a great Great property. Overall, we ended up putting about 70000 in the rehab. So it was 90000 altogether. And then we actually found a private lender who put, uh, let us take a $100,000 mortgage on the property and at a 4.5% interest over 30 years. So for a commercial building, that was really great. Yeah, that does sound great. What's interesting is it sounds like it's almost like a house hack, but for commercial real estate, I've, I've actually had some friends that owned a business and they they just needed one unit, but they'd buy a five unit and they'd rent out the rest so that their rent for their business was less. And it's interesting to hear that you were able to do the same thing. Yeah. And it goes back to like having like that building has two streams of income for me. It has the other tenants income and then it has the liquor store income. So that, that's what I like about it. And I just told my partner the other day, I'm like, you know what? That should be our niche. We should go and buy you know mixed use buildings like this and have these different streams. And the downstairs commercial and upstairs residential. So you could even break that into three different income streams. Yeah, that's really interesting. What is what is the margins like? What do the financials look like on a on a liquor business? So for like the markup on the different products, so like markup on wine can be up to like fifty percent 
of what you buy it from the wholesaler. And then for liquor, it's about 30 to 35% markup on that. So we're, I mean, we're a really small store. The population in the surrounding area is only 15,000 people of that. But we are on like a main road that goes to kind of like another town that really there's only one way in and out of there. And then there's also two jails where every you know, shift change, the COs go and we're right next to the convenience store where they always stop. They get their breakfast sandwiches in the morning and they get their <laughs> sandwich in the afternoon. And then there's also a, a school there. So there's lots of teachers in the area. And then there's also a factory kind of building manufacturer too in the area. So uh, we made sure, you know, there was a couple other, not large businesses, but smaller businesses that could help support that, that had employees that were coming from other towns coming into this town. I've never looked into a liquor store per se, but I've heard that in the restaurant business that alcohol is, I mean, essentially carries the business. I mean, the food's not much, if anything, for profit and it's all alcohol. So I can only imagine that a liquor store probably does pretty well. And it doesn't go bad. Like it has a long, long shelf life too. So that's like a huge uh, difference too than having, you know, like being in the restaurant industry where, so my partner, he owns a couple Subway franchises. So like he has to deal with all the time, food spoiling, throwing it out, having to buy more, anything like that. But yeah, with liquor has a, and wine has a long shelf life. Sometimes the better it sits there, the better it is. That's funny. That's, that's a good point because one of the hard parts about a retail business is managing inventory, especially if you haven't done that in the past. With an inventory that doesn't really go bad, that's, that's great. Yeah. But it's been really interesting because I honestly don't know anything about wine or liquor. And even the business now, we've set it up so that my partner that owns the Subway franchises, he has like a, a supervisor that handles everything, runs everything. So as we got closer to our liquor license, we're we did all the rehab stuff like that. And we thought we are so awesome. Like we're opening a liquor store. Well, we learned really quickly the rehab was the easy part. But once it came like actually time to open, ordering the inventory, what to order, hiring employees, getting our software system, our POS system, getting our handbook together, just everything, uh, following the liquor license rules. We started to get overwhelmed and we're like, you know what, let's just bring her in and we'll pay her to do all of it. And she just took care of everything for us. She placed our first order. She priced everything, put everything into inventory. We did spend more money than we actually needed to on our POS system and our inventory management. So like everything is just scanned in. There's no manual entries or anything like that. But she set up our systems for us. She kind of learned along the way about liquor and wine. And then we brought on an actual manager for the store that had you know, the knowledge of liquor and wine from working as a bartender. And finding an actual liquor store manager is kind of hard because there's not that many, you know, one per town or whatever in New York State. And so at first people told us, we'll go for distributors. So, you know, people who work for the, the wholesale companies, go for them. You know, they obviously know the products, everything like that. But those are also hard to find too. And those are, they're used to making big money. You know, we're a super small liquor store. We can't start you off the bat at a hundred grand. So we started looking for people that had been bartenders who had managed bars and just knew what people liked, knew what went together and knew different stuff about liquor and wine. So we have our manager now. And then we also have uh, one part-time employee who is awesome and knows everything there is to know about beer and wine just from, or wine and liquor just from working as a bartender. And then we have a couple other part-time employees too now. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear about this whole how it's evolved because real estate, you are an entrepreneur, but you don't really have like employees and you don't have inventory, you don't have retail operations and things like that. And now your liquor store it's another way to be an entrepreneur, but there's so many different things. I mean, you have the real estate component, which clearly you already have a good handle on, but then now you have the retail operations, hiring employees, inventory, all of these different things that you hadn't experienced before. Yeah. And just with the employees, I mean, you have the different insurances you have to have. You have you know, your, your payroll taxes, you have, and now you have sales tax. So just all these different things are different animals that you know I haven't really had experience dealing with. I when I ran the management company, I had a very small payroll, and that, but everything was pretty much taken care of by the payroll company. But with the the liquor license, you have to follow certain rules as to you know what disability you have to have, workers' comp you have to have, stuff like that, and submit all that into them. You have to have your your files on hand so that when the liquor authority stops in at any time, they can you know look through your books. They can they pretty much look through everything and. Uh, so just all those different rules, she learned everything about that and kind of just took care of everything. Good thing you were an accountant, right? I'm an accountant by trade. I chose not to go the public route, but yeah, I, I get told that all the time. Oh, you could do my payroll or all these different things. I'm like, well, I'm not really a tax guy. I'm, I'm an accountant. The worst is when you're out to dinner with a bunch of people and they're like, here, counter money, split up the check. And you have to three and four is you do realize that like, as an accountant, I don't deal with actual money. Like I have a calculator and have numbers on the screen. The exact same thing happens to me. I'm like, guys, I, I sit in an Excel spreadsheet all day. Like that's, that's pretty much it. You recently bought another property and I, and I want to talk about it a bit. Give us a rundown on it. What kind of property was it? It was a duplex that you got back in, I think it was March or May timeframe. So what kind of property is it? How much did you pay for it? What will it rent for? Things like that. It's actually a, a single family. And it's my biggest rehab yet, and it's still ongoing. Uh, so I did this with a partner, and he wanted to build his house. He currently lives in an apartment, and what, this was the year he was going to build his house. And so our other four unit, we have done the work together. So I like told him in the spring, I'm like, okay, we'll start building your house. Let's take a break. And then we found this house and he's like, well, we'll just do it. We can like hire a bunch of stuff out. I'll do this. I'll do this. And he just really convinced me <laughs> to like get it. And we got it. It was a single family house, four bedrooms, two baths. And it wasn't a complete gut job. I mean, the, we put in new plumbing and all new electrical, but like some of the drywall could stay, I guess. And I mean, but we ripped the kitchens out. The two bathtubs are nice enough to stay, but... So we did uh, the siding stayed. We put a brand new metal roof on. Um, we fixed all the decking, stuff like that. But we got it for $27,000. It was actually, it was on the MLS, but it was um, a bank owned property. And uh, so we purchased it. It was like the end of May and we started working on it. We had a really good start. Well, then August comes along and his, the guy that was going to frame his house and get it ready is like, okay, I'm ready to build your house now. And my partner wanted to do all the foundation work and everything like that, all the excavating. So uh, he's like, well, we're going to have to put our project on hold. And I'm like, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> but it was okay. We had you know, prepared for it that like this project would be put on hold and he would get his house ready. So his house right now is getting, it's getting all framed up. And actually, the roof is going on right now. So we're at the stage where we have to uh, finish the drywall and then I will actually go in and paint and then it should pretty much keep moving after that. 
But that is like one thing with partners is like, make sure you know your partner well and you foresee these things <laughs> happening. Because I mean, it's just been sit like probably the last two months, it's just been sitting there and there hasn't even been any activity in the building at all. But uh, we'll keep it as a buy and hold and rent it out. I post almost every day on Instagram. And one of the common topics that I, I post about is the 1% rule. And when I post about that, I often get a lot of pushback from people saying that 1% deals aren't possible and they don't exist anymore or not in my market. And the deal, a couple of deals that we've talked about that you have done recently, whether it be the liquor store, or a couple others, have met the 1% deal. So clearly they do exist. How are you able to find these deals? Well, the thing is they meet the 1%, but they don't meet the 50%. So in New York State, we have really high property taxes. So one of my buildings, I bought it for $17,500. I've owned it for maybe three, four years. And I've put over the years, I've probably put like maybe 8000 into it. So not a lot. And the, the downstairs rents for 500 and the upstairs rents for 700 So that's pretty good on a $17,000 house. But I pay $3,500 a year in property taxes on that house, a $17,000 house. a year. So that's a lot of times why I hit the 1% rule is because my property taxes are so high in some areas. And then um, another building I have, once again, exceeds the 1% rule. I purchased it for $35,900. And after we closed, we put a new fridge in. That was it. It appraised for $55,000. So that was like a great deal. It rents for $1,200 total, $600 each unit but it's in a flood zone and it requires flood insurance and that costs $1,500 a year. So that's just you know added on to the property taxes and just even the regular landlord insurance. Can you define the 1% rule and the 50% rule for people who may not know what it is? So the, the 1% rule is that the rental income you're getting that from that property is 1% uh, the purchase price or you know your purchase price in rehab that you put into the building. And then the 50% rule is that 50% of your expenses or your expenses are 50% or less than what your rent is each month. And so the 1% rule is possible, but because you have high property taxes, your expenses are high. So yeah, they're, they're over the 50% usually. And I know you're putting together a brand new tenant handbook. Have you had tenant handbooks in the past? If so, why do you need a new one specifically for the property that you're creating it for? And if not, why are you starting now? So I've been uh, toying with the idea of going back to property management on my own unit. So back in February, I handed off that investor's portfolio and my portfolio to a property management company. And it's still more work than I thought it was going to be. So I'm almost to the point where, okay, do I just go back to having my own? But now I have this supervisor who's handling all of our stuff and she can just run it. And I don't have to you know, answer phone calls or I don't have to deal with anything. And I'm starting to look into, can I put these processes in place to completely take me out of the picture of a property management company? So I've been toying with that idea. So my partner and I just bought a single family home with a detached garage kind of barn thing. Great to rent out for storage. And then it also has one bedroom unit attached to the garage. So the single family house, we purchased it. Uh, This was an off-market deal. We had a single family house completely rent ready. So we've already rented that out. We've already rent out the storage garage. 
So I am using this single family unit as a, a trial run to so as I rented it, as I did their lease, as I moved them in, I'm documenting everything and just putting everything together. And I kind of had this when I did the property management company before, but I also it was only me. It was I had my part time employee that kind of just entered in payables and did some leasing. But I just knew how to do everything. So I never really wrote stuff down because I never really saw myself hiring other people to do what I was doing. It was the plan was always, well, when I don't want to do it, it will go to a property management company and they already have their systems. So I'm using this property as kind of like a guinea pig to see how it works and to see if I actually want to go back to self-managing a unit. So I created this tenant handbook, Steve Rosenberg actually had a sample from when he owned his property management company. And I kind of broke that down and put it into a smaller scale and then made it so you can make it specific to your property. So there's like boxes in there where you'll fill in who is the the gas provider, who's the electric provider, a phone number, the meter number, all those things right there for the tenant, things they need to know about the house. Where is the, the water shut off? Uh, instructions for different kind of maintenance requests. For example, if you plug the toilet, you are responsible for getting it unplugged, different things like that. So I, I spent a lot of time then. It's actually on my website, if anybody wants it at ashleycare.com or if you, there's a link in my Instagram profile too, but it's just free and you can customize it to your property. Ashley and I are both very active on Instagram. So be sure to follow us both. Ashley's Wealth From Rentals and I am the Robert Leonard. I'll put a link to both of our profiles and the tenant handbook in the show notes. So if you guys are interested, you can check that out. What has been the biggest thing or most important thing that Steve Rosenberg that you mentioned, what's been the biggest thing he's taught you about the handbook process? So really, he didn't teach you anything about it. He just emailed it to me. It was like, here you go. (laughs) I tailored it and made it better. I'm just kidding. But made it more specific to someone who's self-managing compared to like an actual big company. Like I took out a lot of the we are all here to assist you. Please give our office a call, blah, 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 like things like that, where, you know, as a, when you're self managing, you really don't have an office. And I tried to make it sound less uh, corporate, I guess. And then I just added in those specific things, like what the meter number is, who to contact uh, for this, what's the garbage schedule, where do you do, what do you do with your leaves when you rake them up? When will the town come and pick them up? Just stuff like that. I tried to dig into specific details about that property. And so I made it for me. And then I took that and just converted it to how can I make this so somebody can easily fill in the blank for their property with these things. But I mean, Steve has taught me so many things. I can give an example of something else besides the handbook, but really just putting systems in place. I mean, he's really helped me with that. And I think a lot of the reasons the liquor store is passive is because I've I learned from him that you don't have to be hands-on for everything. And one thing he had me do when uh, he first started mentoring me was for two weeks, I had to write down every single thing I was doing. And that just was eye-opening. And anybody who hasn't done that, I highly recommend doing that. And you will see where your time is going, but you'll also see what things are productive and what are time wasters. What are things that that you're just doing that are making yourself busy? And then really look at, you know, what things are working on your business instead of in your business. But also if you send it to somebody too. So I had to text it to him every single night. And he, the one day I didn't send it at my usual time. And he said, I'm only going to ask you this once. If you're still going to send it, he said, if you don't send it, don't bother talking to me again. And that was just like, oh my God, he's not kidding. 
So I, you know, sent it to him and everything like that. But it also, I was very conscious about what I was doing because I didn't want him to look on there and be like, she just scrolled on Instagram for three hours. She's not even a productive person. So I was very focused those two weeks too, because I knew somebody else was going to be looking at what I was doing every single day. So that helped too. A lot of people ask me how to find a mentor. How, how did you get Steve as a mentor or just any mentors that you've had in general? I mean, it sounds like the investor that you've worked for for a while has probably been a pretty big mentor to you as well, if I had to guess. So uh, for Steve, at least, I just slid into his DMs. He has written a book, Failing for Millions. I don't even remember the title. I've looked at it so many times. It's available on Amazon. I had read his book. And uh, at the Bigger Pockets conference last year, Investor Girl Britt and Kara Beckman, they had all told me how Steve had mentored them a little bit. And so that had piqued my interest. And then I think it was last like January, I read his book. And then I messaged him on Instagram, just said, hey, I loved your book. And this is what I'm doing. This is what I need help with. Would you, you know, be interested in talking with me? So he asked me a couple more questions. And then he set up a phone call with me. And he said, hey, if you help with my social media, I will, uh, you know, I'll mentor you and we'll do a call every week or whatever and can text me anytime. So that worked out great. I realized I hated managing, like helping someone else's social media because <laughs> I barely could keep up with mine. Then we started tr- like turning all these different business ideas and we started actually the Think Tank Mastermind together. And now Steve just does it on himself. And then he's doing um, these six day challenges for people. So, but that was like fun. Like, it's so funny how it just like turned where we were, he was mentoring me and then we kind of just like partnered on stuff. And I mean, the the last year, how we both grown together has just been really cool to watch. So just asking and I provided some value back to him by helping getting his social media. And then he got interns and people that actually knew what they were doing to, to help him with that. As far as the investor I work for, I was always looking for more ways to be involved, the ways to help him. Like I saw myself as more of a personal assistant to him than just, I'm your property manager. That's all I do. I mean, I would go get his lunch. He was in the hospital one time and I took his socks off for him while he was in the hospital bed. Like I would do anything for this man and he knows that. And I, you know, I really showed my loyalty. So he just brought me anything he did. He opened uh, from scratch a insurance company. He got me my license and I helped him open it. He purchased a large auto dealership. He took me to the closing table. I wrote the checks. He involved me in everything and I was always open to learning more. I was never like, you know what, this is my job. I'm just going to stick to that. Like, I spread myself out and tried to get my hands into anything he was doing to learn. And it was just awesome. I was getting paid to learn those things too. So if you can get someone to be your mentor and you're working for them, it's even better. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's the big key is that you were so flexible and you were a go-getter. I mean, you weren't... There's a lot of people that will just stick within their guidelines or their job description and they wonder why things aren't happening to them. Well, it's because you need to put yourself out there. And sometimes you have to do more than you're asked or more than it's expected of you to get to where you want to go. Yeah, I agree. You've been doing a lot of different things during the pandemic, and but it's been putting a lot of stress on a lot of people, entrepreneurs, real estate investors, even individual people. What have you learned during this time and what are you doing to better yourself? Well, I definitely have learned that I like that. So I gave the property management company, gave it all in February. So that was like perfect timing for COVID because I did not have to like, I mean, they were sending out emails and letters like every single day, like updating tenants, what's going on, how to handle the stuff and everything like that. 
And I was so thankful I didn't have to deal with that. But I think, and just like being home in general. So during that time, I was finishing up my four unit rehab. So it really didn't affect me because I would just go to my rehab, work there. My husband, he worked on the farm. And then the only change was my kids were home from school, but only one of them was really in school age, the other just preschool. So they had to do, you know, just a half hour Zoom call day. It really made me realize just that having those multiple streams of income, as I had mentioned before, and that we didn't really have to worry about, okay, maybe the rental property, the the rental income wasn't paid. Like we still had these other sources of income coming in and we would be okay. And just like really enjoying that time at home, like having to go to weddings or baby showers or stuff like that. And we also saved money because we didn't have to do, there was nothing to go out and do and spend money on. But really the biggest thing was just that having those multiple streams of income and not relying on one thing. So it kind of like goes in with how when you work for a job, you know, it's recommended not to only buy stocks and that business because then, you know, if that business goes under, you're losing your portfolio and you're losing your job. So that's just what I've, I've seen even more and more eye-opening is just having those multiple streams of income. For a new or aspiring real estate investor listening to the show today who also has big real estate goals, what's the best piece of advice that you can give them? The first thing would be to work for somebody to learn, even if that's a part-time job, just being a, doing some maintenance for them, being a leasing agent, driving for dollars for them, anything like that, whether you're doing it for free or but prefer to get paid like it's way better. And there's so many, you know, jobs that are involved with real estate that you can get paid to learn and you'll grow your network, you'll meet people, you'll get access to information. Like if you show apartments, you'll get to see what apartments look like in your area. You'll get to hear what tenants like they don't like. You'll get to see leasing documents, stuff like that. So that'd be my my first piece. And the second thing is if you can house hack, that's the one regret I had. I didn't know what house hacking was. We kind of house hacked. We lived in my husband's grandma's house for free. We had purchased it. My husband owned it free and clear. And um, so we lived there for a while before we actually built our house. But as far as renting out rooms or like living in a duplex, renting out the other side, I would definitely uh, recommend house hacking to start if you can. If my husband would have like offered that to me before I even started real estate investing, I probably would have been like, no, like I want our own house. So probably if you're married, it's not as uh, likely to be an option, but um, yeah, especially or if you have kids or anything like that. But then there are some families that, that do it, but I, I recommend house hacking for sure if you can. Yeah. House hacking could be not as appealing if you're married or have kids or things like that. But I mean, I second that. I think house hacking is huge. I think it's super important. I actually have a property under contract right now. I'm supposed to close in two weeks. It's going to be a house hack for me. So I'm looking forward to that. It's a duplex, uh, but it should be it should be great. So I'm looking forward to it. This will be my third house hack. So it should be should be good. So Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm already looking forward to doing it again. For those listening that are interested in learning more about you and might want to connect, where's the best place for them to go? The best place is on Instagram at Wealth From Rentals. And then for fun, I recently started a YouTube channel called Talk It Over. And the link to that is in my bio in Instagram. But it's just, I'm helping a guy, Jason. He was my videographer. And now I'm helping him learn about real estate investing and what it is. So we just do a little tiny talk show and learn about real estate investing. 
Awesome. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. I'll also put a link to your podcast, the Bigger Pockets Rookie Podcast. I love that show. So if you guys are looking for more real estate content, be sure to go check that out. I know you guys won't be disappointed. Ashley, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.